if you're really looking to scale, and ultimately, if you're bringing in outside capital, and someday you may want to have a strategic buyer, being able to leverage that success online into bricks and mortar will, you know, probably result in a higher valuation if you're looking to exit to a strategic buyer. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I am very, very excited and honored to be interviewing Bob Burke, who is the principal of Natural Products Consulting and is a veteran in the health and wellness space and natural food space. So welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm happy to be here, Christy. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. So why don't you just give a little background about yourself and your company, and then we can get into some really good conversation about what's happening in the space right now. That sounds great. So I've been consulting now for about 25 years, mainly around bringing natural, organic, and specialty products to market across all channels and classes of trade. And at this point, I've worked with companies of pretty much every size, stage, category, probably 80% food and beverage, the rest, everything else, supplements, personal care, cleaning, et cetera. Along the way, I've done a how-to guide reference book called the Natural Products Field Manual, now in its ninth edition. It's a whole package of content, databases, coupons for services, and some consulting time. Until COVID, I was doing seminars twice a year, a two-day sales seminar with my friend, John Majuri, and a whole group of expert speakers on you know, all the various topics, as well as a one-day seminar on raising capital with Mike Bergmeier and Nick McCoy of Whipstitch Capital. I'm also privileged to serve on a number of boards and advisory boards. A few of them are uh, the King Arthur Baking Company, Uncle Matt's Organic, Saffron Road, Cauliflower Foods, Walden Mutual Bank, and All Terrain. And I also work with a number of international sort of government agencies helping to bring their country's products into the U.S. So groups like Board BIA, the Irish Food Board, New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, Quebec Delegation, Business Sweden, Business Finland, and others. And then, you know, prior to all this, I ran marketing and sales at Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. And I was there for about 11 years from the early bathtub years on the farm, under a million, hemorrhaging money. My friend Gary Hirschberg, the uh, co-founder, longtime CEO, has a terrific podcast on Guy Raz, How I Built This. And I lived through all those stories. And so it's a good listen for folks who are coming up in this industry. Awesome. Well, your experience is incredible and impressive. And it seems like you have been involved with so many really great brands. So can you talk a little bit about how brands wind up coming to you and, and where you start with them? Is it always really early stage? Is it, it sounds like you're, you're involved in a lot of different stages. Yeah, Naturally, uh, for a lot of the things I do, it's going to skew earlier. So if you're familiar with some brands like Orgain, Plum Organics, Theo Chocolate, Saffron Road, Mama Chia, et cetera, 
These are examples of companies that I met pre-revenue, in some cases wrote their plan, worked with them through startup and launch, helped them connect with various resources, you know, like yours, you know, branding companies, contract sales companies, brokers, maybe helped with some of the initial hires or connect with investors. So things like that. But then, you know, probably have worked with more companies in that early stage, a million, two million, five million, ten million, who are really, you know, they've been on the market for a little bit, they have some validation. And now it's like, where do we go from here? What's the best roadmap in terms of scaling, clarifying our objectives, putting the right team together, and what kind of outcome are we looking to shape? But I've worked with a lot of, you know, the more established companies, Annie's at various times, Nature's Path, a little bit of Bob's Red Mill. There's a terrific company in the Boston area called Harbar, which has the Maria and Ricardo's Tortilla Factory, worked with them for a long time. And then with the big CPG companies over the years, it's often with, been with their venture strategy groups or their uh, M&A people and things like that. So it's been a you know pretty broad spectrum. And likewise, some of the international companies that I've done go-to-market plans for have been you know well over a billion euro as a company, but at the time, little presence here in the States. But I would say more of them tend to be uh, smaller that are coming yeah. here. Interesting. So you mentioned a couple of things that I'd like to just kind of go back to. You talk about companies that have had some validation. What does that mean exactly? Yeah. Like it well, seems like it could be pretty broad. It is pretty broad. I mean, so this being 2022 and all, if you're ambient, if you're shelf stable, then almost always you're starting online, right? Mm -hmm. So some amount of Amazon, some amount of your own Shopify, DTC, there are plenty of other great platforms depending on your category, but people like Thrive Natural, et cetera. So, yeah. you know, seeing evidence of repeat purchase, uh, month over month sales growth, you know, starting to dial in what's the right price point, what's the right offering, what's the right messaging, things like that. And then when it comes to bricks and mortar retail, it's really all about velocity. So your rate of sale off the shelf usually expressed in units per SKU, you know, per flavor. So units per SKU per store per week. And then seeing some kind of momentum, seeing some kind of increases. And, you know, if you have any items in Whole Foods, for example, you'll have access to the Whole Foods portal where you can see units, dollars, average price by SKU, by store, by region for any time frame you wish. And so knowing that you know perhaps you might start at three or four units a week and then you do a round of demos or you do a promotion or you do something and then you see it go up you know to five or six units or seven or eight units that's perfect that's beautiful so you said a couple of things there that i thought were interesting too so I want to talk about Amazon for a second because it's such a big topic for brands. Like there were brands that were DTC that refused to go onto Amazon because uh, for obvious reasons, and then brands that can't not be on Amazon. So when you start working with a DTC only brand, or that's where they're starting because they're shelf stable, do you believe they need to be on Amazon at the beginning or is there a, a, a way to grow without it? Well, I mean, there are plenty of people that have grown without it. Um, and again, part of it depends on your category. Mm -hmm. And I would also say, though, that, you know, Amazon 
dwarfs almost everything else, you mm -hmm. know? And so it is the place where, you know, the majority of consumers uh, start their search when they're shopping for something. And they certainly with, you know, whatever the numbers are today, 100 million households on Amazon Prime, you know, it is the default for a lot of people. So even yeah. if you have your own site, and they can certainly coexist. And so, you know, your own Shopify site is your showroom. It's, you know, it's your testing ground. Yep. It's where you can really be rich with consumer information, educational materials, usage, you know, depending on your category. And you have the you know, almost like infinite ability to test either new concepts, bundles, case packs, sizes, price points, promotional offers. So it's hugely, hugely valuable. But many companies sometimes underestimate the level of investment in digital marketing, social PR, influencer, as well as fulfillment, you know, so both to drive people to your site and then do that fulfillment. And so when you compare that against, you know, in a smaller, earlier stage brand, probably being on Seller Central, where you're controlling price, you're controlling inventory on Amazon and can definitely, again, they can they can be symbiotic and they can definitely work for you. Interesting. I've had a lot of conversations recently about that because there's always the push and pull of how do I launch and where should I be? And if I'm building a site and trying to send people there and then they're looking there and then going to Amazon, which is what I do, right? That's a pretty normal behavior. I look at, on a site and I do exactly what you said, go look for really deep information, try to understand everything. And then I go buy it at a place where it's fast and shipping's free. And I've you got might a big get it that day or the next day or in two days. And I ordered something on Sunday stuff. night. Sunday night, and I got it on Monday morning. I don't even know how that happens. I have no idea how it happened. <laughs> Where <And> was it? <laughs> it's, so again, it's one of these things. It's reality, right? Yes, yes. And yep. and you have, a, I'm sure, a good network of folks. One of my friends, Betsy McGinn, who wrote the uh, e-com chapter for my field manual and has spoken at my seminars, is someone who spends all her time on e-com and actually wrote a book called The Amazon Roadmap. And so getting help like that from, you know, people who have broad perspective yeah. can really help evaluate some of these strategic options in terms of timing and sequencing and what's the best way to structure. So both are successful. And ultimately, if you're really looking to scale, and ultimately, if you're bringing in outside capital, and someday you may want to have a strategic buyer, being able to leverage that success online into bricks and mortar will you know, probably result in a higher valuation if you're looking to exit to a strategic buyer. Yeah, yeah. I have an interesting question for you. You've been working with a lot of brands for a long time. So for you, the health and wellness space and the natural food space isn't new. For a lot of <laughs> mass consumers, right, it's new-ish. It's only the past few years that the consciousness has been raised and there are people thinking about, you know, I, I wore a glucose monitor for two weeks just because it was interesting and fun. And it was, and it's cool to be able to think about your own things that way. But what about, I think this is interesting. There are a lot of brands that were sort of pioneers in the category that are now sort of just kind of hanging around, losing distribution, wondering where to go next because there's so much competition. 
So I wonder if you work with any brands like that and and what you would say to them, like, can they do it? Can they make comebacks? Is it, you know, are the pioneers that haven't held their market share, is, it, is there hope for them? Well, I, I think there's always hope, right? Meaning, <laughs> I mean, let's not, let's not be uh, fatalistic, but it, it's a good lesson that you always have to be innovating. You yeah. can never be complacent. You can never sit back and rest on your laurels. And you have to be tuned in to where the consumer's going and where the market's going. And so I agree with everything you said in terms of these products, meaning better for you, clean ingredient, healthy, all that. They've truly become mainstream. Definitely. You know? And yeah. so that's why every last supermarket in the country is featuring them. Many of them have private label in these categories. Right. The big mass retailers, Walmart, Target, Costco, have all made you know big commitments to natural, organic, specialty, gluten-free, allergen-free, all these things that were mainly found in natural and specialty retail. And yeah. so that's going to happen. And so if you're one of those brands who might have emerged and scaled 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and, and you're seeing you know, your market share eroded by some of these upstarts, you've got to really think about either how to remake yourself or how do you get into some of these categories, right? And and I haven't studied the category, but for example, 15 or 20 years ago, silk might have been the leading mm-hmm. you know, plant-based milk, right? Soy milk. Well, and then came almond milk, coconut milk, flax milk, anything that can be made into a milk is being made into a milk. It is true. Not Pete, the least of which, oh, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, everything. Yes, and so, everything. You know, so if you're a silk from the 70s and 80s and, and, you know, you studied marketing, the old marketing myopia, right? What business are we in? Yeah. Are you in the soy milk business or the yeah. plant-based or non-dairy? And so as, you know, these new options emerge, you're either participating or you're getting your lunch eaten, you know, yeah, yeah. and some of these, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't coin the term, but I've heard them refer to as donor brands, you know, and I don't mean silk. I'm referring to your point of larger veteran, well-established who's now, you know, seeing their share eroded by uh, more innovative, more timely and more current brands. I haven't heard that term before. What does it mean? What donor, is donor brands? Brand? Yeah. What does it mean? Well, it's just, I mean, sound, I can it's, guess. Like it's, it's just like it sounds. I mean, a well-established company might have a 20% share, but again, they, they haven't innovated for a while. They've become mm-hmm. a little complacent and now people are picking them off and, and you're seeing their space get smaller. You mm-hmm. know, these they might've had two or three doors in the frozen aisle and now they're down to one or yeah. two or three shelves of frozen dessert. And now they have one. Yeah. Because of all the new products that have come up. Yeah. So they're yeah. the ones who've got the space to lose, if you will. Yeah. Yep. Yep. What's the biggest challenge you see? Like, is there something that happens over and over that you get called in for over <laughs> and over? Well, it's not that I get called in for, but there are things that I've seen over and over. And they're almost, I don't want to say too many to mention, but some of the first ones that come to mind is one thing I've seen over and over is brands who let their distribution get ahead of their sell through, right? 
And so when I mentioned earlier the importance of velocity, that seems self-evident, but there are so many brands where they might confuse building out distribution with building their business. Yep. And they get intoxicated by that pipeline fill. Yeah. Right. So you get the big orders, you know, you get into 2000 targets or you get into a few thousand Walmarts or Kroger's or whatever, and you're shipping these truckloads or half truckloads of product. And you think, wow, we're killing it. Yep. And then, you know, if it's not turning off the shelf yep. and it's languishing, then all this hand wringing ensues of, you know, do we need to rebrand or do, or do we need to like freshen up the package? Is the price too high? Is the pack, you know, too many ounces? Is it not sweet enough or too sweet? And those are all things you should have figured out when you're in your pilot phase or you're really working through that, cracking the code of what does it take to sell off the shelf? And yeah. that's a big one. And, and sometimes they're egged on by their investors, right? So you think of a brand who might've had a little bit of success. Now a venture firm comes in, they've put five or 10 million into the company. They start to you know, staff up, they increase their marketing spend, but now the pressure's on for mm -hmm. them to hit plan, to grow fast. And the easiest, most linear way to grow is by expanding distribution. But if you start doing it before you've got all those other proof points validated, you could be in for a lot of trouble. So that, that's a common one. Mm -hmm. But then the biggest one probably is not running out of cash, right? That's probably killed more good promising brands than anything else, right? So it's just a fundamental reality of cash flow. And so having for every entrepreneur who, who listens to your podcast and who watches this, it's having a basic bottoms up sales plan where you can sort of itemize what you expect to do online month to month what you expect to be doing in bricks and mortar retail month to month how many stores carrying how many items turning at what rate a week at what pricing a realistic understanding of trade spending and just you know see your pnl flow down to a cash flow so you understand either when will we get to break even or conversely, if you've got some funding, when might we run out of cash and you know, planning ahead. So if you think we're gonna be running out of cash in six months or nine months, you don't start the fundraising process a month before, or you're thinking of alternative sources of financing, you know, whether there's some debt options or, you know, even things like factoring and purchase order financing. And I realize I'm all over the map here, but it's the notion of not running out of cash because that's then you're sort of dead in the water. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, when you're trying to make a deal with a potential investor, lender, et cetera, and your back's against the wall, you're not in a very good position to make a good deal. Yeah, yeah. Do you, um, I mean, I would imagine given the sheer number of entrepreneurs and startups and new brands popping up that there's a ton of that happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a reality. And the other thing I'll mention is for the longest time, there was this, I think, flawed logic of 
we're in this like frothy, heady period of grow, grow, grow as fast as you can. Don't worry about losing money. We're going to have this Hail Mary unicorn exit and everything's going to fall into place because the, the big CPGs are not good at innovating. You know, in fact, the, the cliche was innovation through acquisition, right? Mm-hmm. And they're paying these crazy multiples and that's just going to happen indefinitely and for the foreseeable future. And that's been discredited. And, and whether it's a correction by going through COVID and all the challenges and opportunities companies have experienced, but now there's definitely a greater appreciation for the whole like ethos of being capital efficient, mm-hmm. you know, stretching your dollars as far as they can go. Be really sober about what you're investing in for marketing. It's beautiful where entrepreneurs can outsource almost everything and go pretty far without having to add a big, you know, team overhead. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of when investors say, wow, they've gone from startup to a million or two million or three million, and they haven't raised outside capital, or they've only done friends and family or something like that. That's very impressive. Or, you know, they they did a small seed round or a, a pre-A round where they brought in half a million dollars and it got them to five million. Mm-hmm. That's exciting versus the ones who the opposite of that, just to put a fine point, are the ones who raise 15 million to get to five million in sales. Mm-hmm. That's not as exciting, you know? Not That's for not as attractive. All the many opportunities to reach consumers whether it's DTC, online, piloting, and like we talked about in a region, and having the ability to outsource your sales management, your accounting and finance, your operations, there are fractional CMOs out there, all those things just enable entrepreneurs to do this more effectively than just five years ago. Yeah. And I think that's really, I mean, I think that's true of every industry too. Like you could pretty much outsource everything, which is there's a positive and negatives, I think to that, but as an early stage brand, it's almost like you sort of have to, because otherwise you're just rolling the dice in, in too big of a way. But I think it's also allowed a lot more brands to sort of pop up. So I, I wonder if you've seen the, just the sheer volume of brands being launched does that mean they have less of a chance of success, more of a chance? Like, what's your feeling about all of that? Well, I mean, I've been doing this for a while, and it seems like there's no shortage of new companies launching every week, yeah. month, quarter, year. Yeah. I, I just returned from the Winter Fancy Food Show. There were a lot of new emerging brands there. And what I would say, just from a, a basic, simple, common sense perspective, is for those people who are thinking of launching or who are still early on, is you know start with the basic, is what I'm planning to offer truly a remarkable product that deserves to win in the market, right? Mm-hmm. And when you sit in front of a retail buyer, a distributor, a broker, an investor, are they going to conclude this is really innovative and going to drive growth in the category? Highly differentiated, compelling, whatever it is, right? And that's a first step. Secondly, 
you know, moving into feasibility is, do I have any preliminary idea of what it's going to cost to make this mm -hmm. so that I can have rewarding and forgiving gross margins? Because that then feeds into the whole, can we get to positive cash flow? Yeah. Because, you know, one of the Achilles heels of the people who don't, you know, have that healthy cash flow is they have subpar margins and they're subsidizing it by ongoing capital raises. Whereas founders, they get diluted down to nothing. Mm -hmm. And that's not a great, you know, outcome for all that hard work and ingenuity yeah. yeah. and all the rest. And and when I say healthy gross margins, no one's expects you to be at scale right away, but that you have a pathway to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we talked a little bit before we started doing this, and you know, there are some principles that are pretty straightforward and simple that I think haven't changed. And can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think there's obviously there are lots of new things and technologies and data, and but then there are some things that are pretty important to, to know that they haven't changed, like you need a solid brand and all the things <laughs> you said about pricing strategy and all that stuff that people sort of forget as they're racing to, I need data or I need I need a really cool system. Yeah, and, and I, I guess I would start with, you know, the first conversation I often have with a company is understanding what outcome are they looking to shape? Are they, you know, is their ambition to grow and sell this to Unilever or Kraft or whoever, or is it more of a lifestyle business? You know, they have a passion about something. They want to do it for the next 10, 20 years. And, and both are fine. Sometimes you'll hear, oh, this was a great brand and they sold out because they mm -hmm. sold to Coke, you know, and mm -hmm. I totally disagree with that. Mm -hmm. If you're building a business and you've taken out other people's money, there has to be a way for them to monetize, for them to get liquidity. And that's often through the sale, but not always. So the first step is understanding, you know, what you're looking to accomplish here. And then from there, if the outcome is to, you know, sell to a strategic buyer someday, then you can think about what makes you an attractive target, if you will, right? What makes you an attractive acquisition. And it's a lot of the things we touched on. It's showing growth. Are you growing faster than the category? Are you growing year over year? Do you show good velocity growth, distribution growth, et cetera? Do you have decent gross margins? Because eventually, if you do sell to a strategic, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for further margin improvement if they put it into their plants, into their distribution system, et cetera. And so that'll be good creative contribution for them, which helps them justify a better price for you. And one of the, the biggest things that I always advise brands to invest in is their branding. You know, getting help from a firm like yours on articulating what their brand stands for, values, personality, all those kinds of things. Are you truly building a brand that resonates with consumers, building that emotional connection? which creates value. And, and when you define what that brand stands for, you can think of it as a platform where you might potentially extend into other categories. And if you're able to show some evidence of that, you have greater value to a potential buyer. And the same goes with channels. Most brands start in the natural and specialty channel and certainly online as well today, but those channels tend to be a little more forgiving, less expensive, good match with the consumer. Yeah. And then as you go into more mainstream channels, 
supermarkets, mass, Target, Walmart, Costco. And de depending on your category, it could also include food service or convenience and chain drug. There's so many classes of trade out there. But yeah. if you show a little bit of validation in each of those channels, you're planting the idea in the mind of the acquirer of imagine the possibilities. Yeah, yeah. Because when we fill out these channels, we see a clear path to 100 million, 500 million, a billion, et cetera. And that results in more value for them and, and, they, and a better price for the company who's selling. And likewise, if we go back to, hey, I want to do a family business and all that, I've seen plenty of what would be considered a small CPG business, consumer packaged goods business, that might be 5 million in sales with the owners pulling out four or 500,000 a year. Mm -hmm. That's not so bad. For yeah, a lot right. of people, right? Yeah, yeah, and, sure. And in just I've seen, you know, they get to 10 million and they're pulling out a million a year or eight or nine hundred thousand a year. People can say, hey, I'm very happy doing that yeah. without, you know, having a board I have to answer to or a bunch of investors I have to answer to and being, you know, driven faster than I want to grow comfortably and all that. So it's good as long as you're not complacent, as long as you don't get too self-satisfied and then somebody starts nipping at your heels. Yep. So interesting. I want to ask you, though, have you seen any brands in the past couple of years that you're like, wow, that's a great brand or I really admire how they did that? And or is there anybody up and coming that you're just watching that you love? Well, I mean, there's a lot of that's like, you know, which is my favorite child or yes, um, <laughs> I know it's a hard question, whatever. So first of all, Stonyfield was a fantastic experience, right? I had the privilege of uh, joining them when they were under a million with a lot of idealism around healthy food, around impact on the environment, being a socially responsible company. And so lived through all that for a long time, left there on happy, friendly, gracious terms. 10 years later, was invited back to be on the board of Stonyfield. And again, they've, even though they've now been sold a few times, they're still, you know, the largest organic yogurt brand, as well as still having strong social values and all of that. Another company I had a long, great association with was Orgain, founded by a Dr. Andrew Abraham. And again, met him pre-revenue, did his plan, worked with him through startup and launch, later joined his board for nine years. And they continue to make such an amazing impact where he was a cancer survivor, you know, he had cancer at a relatively young age, was sort of appalled at what the medical industry was giving sick yeah. people, you know, things like boost and sure, mm -hmm. a lot of just calories. And he was resolved to come up with an amazing superior product that was organic, high integrity, intrinsically healthy. And you know, it started life as an organic nutritional shake, but he's a great example of being tuned into where the market was going, mm -hmm. where he evolved into powders to make, you know, smoothies and shakes at home and customize it however you wish to plant-based when that really became that eclipse dairy in, yeah. in the category, as well as other healthy ingredients that went into it. And he's doing bars and supplements and other things right now. And it's just been a terrific company that's made such a positive impact on so many people's lives. Amazing. 
I'm yeah. sure you could tell story after story after story about <laughs> brands you've worked with. And I'd love to hear more of them. So maybe we'll have to set up another interview because I think this is, I mean, you've given so much great info and so many great reminders of what, what matters at the beginning, especially. And I think that's awesome. So do you have anything you're like dying to say before we wrap up that you think people really need to know? Well, you know, when you were uh, saying earlier about just some basic, simple yeah. practices, one thing I'd like to say is, so two, really, one is just tying it sort of all together is when you have an outcome, you're looking to shape a goal, objective. It's just, sometimes it's as simple as just getting clarity on that. And then like working backwards, like what are the necessary steps to achieve it? And that sort of becomes your rudimentary plan. And, and then what is it going to take to execute against that? Mm -hmm. in the way of team, outsourced, funding, all of that. And it's just a matter of some, sometimes people are just rambunctious, right? Like, we're just like, we want to get out yeah. there and do yeah. it. And we'll yeah. figure it out as we go. And yes. or we're going to do this or someone's going to steal the idea. Yeah. And the, yeah. I think that whole first mover advantage is a little bit overrated. It's much better to kind of proceed in a, in a little more methodical way. And then the one last thing I'll say, for people like us who are service providers and for all the entrepreneurs out there who work with outsourced resources, whether it be a broker or a contract sales company or a PR firm or whatever, it's so important to agree on expectations. Meaning the, the biggest single reason these things go sideways is a mismatch of expectations. So if you hire a broker, you want to agree on what results might be expected in 90 days, six months, 12 months, really and then have a simple really review good. process to go yep. through it. Yep. So you don't yep. wake up one day and say, oh, I've been paying this company a retainer for a year and I have and nothing I to show for it. I yep. hear that so often. I think that's one of the most compelling things. I mean, I, there's a lot of things that you said. I love the idea of working backward, by the way. I just want to touch on that because I think if you could envision the end, and then say, how did I get here? What a great way to go. That's Stephen I mean, Covey, I, right? Begin with I, the end yeah. of mind. Yes, I love yeah. it. I love that. And I think it's hard though, because you you want, what you said is true. Everyone's so anxious to get out of the gate. But I think that a lot of mistakes get made there when you don't really think it through. And then the agree on expectations. I mean, I know that as well as anybody. I think that's so important because sometimes the process is the thing, right? Like getting a, and, and that's really hard. That's really hard when you're in a service business to have a, a good understanding of. So I think that making sure that the expectations are really clear is a great, great piece of advice for all, for everyone who's involved. Yeah. That's yeah. really awesome. Okay, cool. Right. Thank you so Thanks. much. I really appreciate your time today. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.